Welcome to the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast. My name is John Roskam and I'm the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. The Great Books of Literature podcast is part of the IPA's Foundations of Western Civilization program. Over the next 10 episodes of this series, my friend Andrew Bolt and I will guide you through some of the world's greatest books of literature. James Bolt, the co-host of the IPA's Young IPA podcast, is the compare for this series. In each episode of the series, we'll talk about one book. Once a fortnight, we'll release a new episode. We've selected our 10 books according to three criteria. First, they're books Andrew and I both love. Second, they're books that speak to some of the fundamental questions of Western civilization, such as, what is it to be an individual? And how are we to live in the world around us? Third, they're books that display some of the best of human creativity. We've chosen works of fiction because it is through imagination that the ideals of Western civilization can be expressed. We think our 10 books help us better understand ourselves. You'll probably be familiar with most or all of the books that we've chosen. If you've already read a book that we're talking about, you'll learn about why Andrew and I think the book is important. If you haven't read the book, I hope listening to our discussion will encourage you to read it. And even if you don't decide to read the book after listening to Andrew and I talk about it, we hope that at the end of the episode, you'll know more about the book than you did before. The 10 books Andrew and I have chosen for this series, the IPA's Great Books of Literature podcast are Bleak House, The Leopard, Wuthering Heights, Zorba the Greek, Don Quixote, Heart of Darkness, The Way We Live Now, The Radetzky March, Pride and Prejudice, and The Brothers Karamazov. That's quite a variety of authors and styles and subjects. All of the books have one thing in common though, either through what they say or how they say it, they help us understand Western civilization in some way. I hope that at the end of this series, you won't only know more about 10 great books of literature. I hope you'll also know more about the foundations of Western civilization, and ultimately, you'll know more and better understand our culture, our society, and the world in which we live together. The first book Andrew and I have chosen is Bleak House, the novel by Charles Dickens. It tells the story of a long-running legal case, Jarndyce and Jarndyce, and the story of the lives of the people directly and indirectly involved in the case. I'll now hand over to James. Thank you, John. So I'll just say a few things about the plot and about Dickens at the start, and then we can cut into the uh, discussion about the book. So Charles Dickens is widely claimed to be the greatest novelist in the English language. Now, one of his greatest books is Bleak House, which was first published in book form in 1853. It tells the tales of characters caught up in, even trapped in, an endless legal dispute over a will. John Dice v. John Dice, which goes on and on until the lawyers have used up all the money in legal fees. Now, the novel is seen as Dickens' attack on the abuses of the British legal system, but it's also a biting satire of the charity industry and of the indifference to the poorest of Britain's poor when Britain's Industrial Revolution was at full pitch. Now, the book is split between the third person and the novel's heroines, uh, Esther Summerson, an apparent orphan who is hired to be the companion to young woman involved in the case, the ward of a Mr. Jarndyce who falls in love with Esther. 
the mysterious death of a poor man triggers a cascading of events. A rich woman, Lady Deadlock, comes to mourn a man who turns out to have been her lover and the father of a daughter she gave away. That daughter she discovers one day looks exactly like Esther, and this scandal threatens to destroy her. To discuss the book, we have Andrew Bolt and John Roskam. So, gentlemen, uh, this is going to be a long-range discussion about what we thought of the book and a few questions that arise from it. But I will start with, and many IPM members have come forward with questions that they want you guys to answer. But first one from me, gentlemen, first of all, what did we think of the book? Well, I think uh, while it does satirise the English legal system, I think at the heart of it, it's actually a meditation on love and and duty to, to people and between people with all kinds of weird permutations from the heartless to the loving and I think we've got to say perhaps rather than the court case which is uh, one where the wills were all the money in the wills were exhausted by years and years of nitpicking legal uh, fighting um, what I think is at the heart of it is a benefactor one of the people involved in the uh, this this dispute hires as a guardian or as a companion to one of the two children is taken on as wards, Esther Summerson, a really loving uh, but uh, self-deprecating orphan. And it's uh, she's the heroine of this. Uh, and Dickens writes half the novel in her voice, which is extraordinary as a male author for a start, but also as an author who... The big knock on Dickens was that he couldn't do female characters. And I think he actually... Opinions are divided because some people don't like uh, Esther Summerson. She's too self-deprecating, too self-abnegating. But um, I think he does it really well, John. Uh, uh, This this girl who thinks she doesn't deserve of love but gives so much of it and the travails as she goes through and discovers a big family secret. Oh, look, I think she's completely annoying, uh, I think Bleak House works despite Esther Summerson and I need to admit, James, to you and Andrew knows this, that when we first talked about talking about books and I think we both agreed Dickens had to be number one, two or three, we had a long to and fro about, well, exactly which Dickens book it would be. Andrew won. I lost. I lost my case for <laughs> Great Expectations, which for me is still my very favourite um, Charles Dickens' novel. I hadn't read Bleak House, but Andrew said, no, you've got to do it. Uh, my wife uh, said, you've got to read Bleak House. It's her favourite book. Everyone in the office said you had to read Bleak House. And I'm glad I did. I, it's not my favourite, but I think you can now mount an argument that it's Dickens' greatest uh, book, exactly as Andrew said. Um, there's full of great characters. There's great themes. Uh, but... For me, those themes aren't as significant as as the characters. I find aspects of the plot outlandish, exaggerated, um, spontaneous combustion. Really, we can, talk, we can talk about that, and it's a metaphor. Spontaneous for combustion it's a is lo- one of the characters well, <laughs> bursts into flames at a critical moment. There have been cases uh, where this is seen said to have happened, where 
I don't know, alcoholics got too close to a fire and burned to yeah, death. And then Dickens got upset when everyone criticised him for being completely un, unrealistic. But um, for I all of that, it, it works for me and I'm glad Andrew got me to read it and I'm glad we're starting with Bleak House because the characters are absolutely well, fantastic. That's one of the extraordinary things about Dickens. I think there's something like 80 distinct, uh, separate characters if you, you go through the book. Them halfway through. Well, not, no, not really because I think he, Dickens manages, he's such a master of the telling detail uh, and then for comic relief, he keeps repeating that detail. Such a master of the comic detail that you don't forget the characters. They are uh, summed up in a word, a phrase, a gesture, a habit. You know, um, the, the, the sternness of uh, the, some of the charity workers is just extraordinary. I find it so cinematic. There's a cinematic quality to this from the very first start, not just the characters, but if you think of it, the book opens with this marvellous thing about London fog and mud and it just paints this great London fog. And you can always follow the camera as it goes through uh, this fog and these dirty streets and it comes closer and closer, like a close-up. And at the heart of the fog sits Chancery, which is the court where this Jardis and Jardis case is, is to be heard. And this is a passage that goes through like a page and a half. This is Dickens all the way through. There's a camera that follows people through and, and picks up on characters that are just it's so brilliant. In fact, there's too many characters to actually have this as a, uh, a movie or something like that. It's just too many. But the characters that come into play are ones, like I say, it's a meditation on love and duty. And, and for me, some of it is the charity sector, the sort of greens of yesterday, um, You've been fired up about that oh, for a while. Look, it's been fantastic. And the, and the hypocrisy uh, of the characters who are more concerned about what's happening thousands of miles away in Africa than their starving children at their feet, which is, of course, what Dickens is on about, which is how does a parliamentary system and how does a democracy and how does a growing country allow children to starve to death that, in the well, streets that's, of that's London? That's exactly right. Um that's exactly right. Uh, you throw so many tempting things out there. Just but we're not talking the, about the story, are we? Well, we'll start talking about the story. <laughs> the, 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 character, story the one character in the story that brings it all together, that brings in the aristocracy, because this goes from the top of London society to the very bottom, from the top to the bottom. The one character that brings them in, Lady uh, Deadlock and Sir Lester Deadlock, uh, who have a tremendous travail in front of them, uh, the aristocracy, to Esther Summerson uh, and to characters right at the bottom of the tree and the lawyers and everything, they revolve around one character called Joe the Crossing Sweeper, the poorest of the poor. He lives in the tenements called Tom All Alone, which are destroying, crumbling around him because these are the ones seemingly at the heart of this case. They're the ones that no one can do anything with because they're the contested will. And he uh, well, I, and he's the star of the book. I, for me... I've got to say, in my years of, of reading now, over many decades, he's probably the most affecting character I've come across. I'd heard about him. Uh, and again, you read some of the commentary um, on Bleak House and Dickens generally, and they say, oh, look, you know, it's uh, exaggerated, it's uh, over the top. And in one introduction to Bleak House, I read, well, you know, he's the perfect character for the soap opera gener generation and Kramer versus Kramer and, and love story. But I defy anyone to read without giving the story away, but let's give away part of it. 
I defy anyone to read those couple of pages about uh, Joe's final hours without a tear in their eye. Well, what's interesting? Nine hundred pages that? makes it <laughs> makes worth reading for two pages of Joe. <laughs> Dickens started uh, his career as a journalist, of course, uh, and he also um, he was lucky to get there because he his uh, early life uh, his he was devastated when his father went broke and he was sent off to work in a blacking factory. And he always, never forgave his parents for that. Never, ever forgave his parents for what he thought was, were his blasted hopes. They'd, they'd gone. And after his parents also funded his sister's uh, music education Correct. and put all of the hopes into the sister, whereas Charles was arguably more talented. Well, that she was quite talented herself and, and died young. But uh, you're a- absolutely right. So it was a sort of... Particularly with the presumption then that you looked after the son rather than the daughter. So he would have... He was completely devastated... But anyway, Joe, um, Dickens steps out of character in the novel uh, and addresses moral lectures about how could someone like Joe exist in London, so poor, no parents, sweeping crossings for for next to nothing, nearly starving, living homeless. Uh, How could this happen in the heart of London? I I think that bit where he steps out of character doesn't work. That's where he starts preaching – and I don't think that's as effective as simply allowing Joe and and Alan, the doctor who cares for him, uh, to speak for themselves. Well, I, I, and that's where I, he gets I a actually, bit preaching. I, you know. I actually love it because it gives a moral weight to the whole thing. Yeah, he, he hits you, you over the head with a hammer. With. <laughs> yeah, but he he writes so beautifully uh, on this. But then, what is interesting is so you've got this figure of Joe, and around this this cornucopia of Dickens characters, right? Um, and like I say, this is a meditation on love and duty and charity and all those things, how we owe things to each other. Obviously, you've got these, these courts, the cha- chancery, with this endless Jarndyce and Jarndyce case that only ends when all the money's gone and nobody gets anything. But here you have justice allegedly being done while Joe is starving. And, and you have the affection and relations and love of the poor between each other while the aristocracy and the upper class don't care. They live a life of fakery and charade. And again, this is where, while I'm, I'm happy to complain about Dickens preaching, this is part of the power of Dickens where, while I think some of his, his characters are caricatures, um, he talks passionately about the love of everyone potentially not the do-gooders not not the preachers you know not the churchmen who uh, got very offended when he talked about this it's it's joe and alan and and esther and the other characters well it's interesting but every character almost uh, is redeemed even the aristocracy you, you say don't care uh, well, in, you, one you get ends to grow to like Lord Lester at the end. <laughs> deal. Uh, yes, and even people that seem uh, thick-headed, uh, uh, Sir Lester Deadlock, turns out to have a heart and a loyalty that is really quite moving. Um, but, you know, here T- Dickens, when he steps out of character, he does it almost like Tom Wolfe. Tom Wolfe has just left us. Uh, uh, again, a journalist turned uh, chronicler. Tom Wolfe was a sort of modern Dickens. Let me read a passage that reminds me just so much of some of Tom Wolfe's thing where he talks about, you know, X-ray wives and all that, you know, these skeletal, starve themselves, skinny kind of fashion. Dickens does a passage that's curiously almost the same. I wonder whether this was an inspiration, but so brilliant. So he talks, so we go from Joe the Crossing Sweeper to the Deadlock House, uh, 
you know, they, they, these are very rich aristocrats. And so it says, the deadlocked townhouse in London uh, stares out at other houses in the street of dismal grandeur and gives no outward sign of anything going wrong within, because as we know, something is. Carriages rattle, doors are battered at, the world exchanges calls. Ancient charmers with skeleton throats and peachy cheeks that have a rather ghastly bloom about them seen by daylight, when indeed these fascinating creatures look like death and the lady fused together. Dazzle the eyes eyes of men. Uh, and on he goes, you know, forth from this frigid muse come easily swinging carriages guided by short-legged coachmen in flaxen wigs sunk deep into downy hammercloths. I mean, he does those descriptive things, so the cinemato- you know, the cinematic thing, and then you pan into the characters. Now, you but, he, but just on that, he does it because he's so angry. He, he's, I love he, it. And, and, and you, can, you can sense uh, the passion and his, his feeling um, that these people don't deserve it, that they're hypocrites, that they're living a facade. And of course, they're living in a bubble. They're living, in a bubble. they're living in a bubble. And of course, the parallel between that and his own life that we might talk about later is that at the time he was desperately unhappy in his marriage, but he didn't want London and English society and his readers to have any clue as to what was happening behind his closed doors yes, either. Yes, very cruel to his <laughs> wife. But what I find interesting, so it's not just the courts though. Yeah, I think, the so court, I think we've come to, have we come to the conclusion the courts are secondary? They're a metaphor. They're a metaphor, yeah, metaphor for yeah. an uncaring... They call this justice, right? But th- so you've got Joe the crossing sweeper. Now, you haven't got him just let down by the courts and the politicians to which uh, and the churches. I mean, Dickens... And people who pretend to care last... but then don't and who kick him out onto the streets. Well, on. the caring thing. This is So Dickens is not just angry. He encompasses everything. He's like all of humanity. The comic parts are fantastic because you've also got the charity workers. Joe is there despite all these charity the 19th workers. 19th century environmentalists. This exactly is what you want to say, isn't it? <laughs> brilliant types. Mrs. Jellaby. She is great. You know, she's got, you mentioned it before, Dickens calls it telescopic philanthropy. She can see all the way to Africa. But nothing closer. She can't see the children falling downstairs, that they're dirty, that they're hungry, that they're crying. She doesn't even hear it. Her house is a chaos, but she's forever raising money for Africa. And, I mean, it's just incredible. And, Mrs. Jellyby. And, and she's getting her children to take dictation. And while she writes these endless letters that are an end in themselves that Correct. don't even have any purpose. Uh, correct. Uh, that's it. It's all busy work. It's all in busy order, work. She's being good. She could uh, work she, for the government. But she's actually, no one actually knows what the heck That's she's right. in, does in Africa. And, and the children can see through it as well. And they, and they get very resentful. And this is a common theme, actually. Children are seeing through some of these, these things. Then there's the other charity worker, another, Mrs. Pardigal. <laughs> so Mrs. Pardigal, her speciality is going through to people's houses the, of the poor and reading moral lectures to them. While they're starving. Well, well, in fact, in or one dying. particular scene, yeah. yes, a, t- a baby is dead in the room. She doesn't even notice. She keeps <laughs> giving them temperance lectures because she, um, Dickens for her, the phrase is rapacious benevolence. <laughs> it's like she's stealing her credit from them. And Dickens, who liked to drink, of course, hated the temperance movement. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, in fact, uh, he, he makes fun of her because uh, she enlists all her children into her causes and she boasts how Alfred, aged five, has sworn forever to give up tobacco. 
<laughs> and all the boys are so resentful and hitting each other and across that they've got to give up their money to her causes. But the, the, the thing about um, Dickens poking fun of these people is that Dickens, again, in his private life, actually um, did something about it. So, Very of course, generous. he had Urania, the house for uh, so-called fallen women. Mm-hmm. He, and we could talk about this, took up a lot of social causes and he cared about um, people under his feet in London compared to these people who he was poking fun at, who he said made no difference and only did it for their own self-aggrandizement. But this is so else. interesting. And then there are other... Um the, the jarndice, one of the jarndices uh, involved in the case, he doesn't want anything to do with it. The case rolls on even though he doesn't want anything to do with the it. The old wise man. Yeah, the old wise man. Too good to actually be true. But uh, he's bludged off by another character, Harold Skimpole. Oh, you should, you've should. you got to talk about Skimpole. I mean, I think all of us in our own lives have no come across Skimpole. some sort of character like Skimpole. But, well, but Skimpole to be fair, well, I don't like says, Esther. To- she sees through Skimpole at the end. She does. She does. Um, he says, for instance, I almost feel as if you should be grateful to me for giving you the luxury of generosity. So he bludges anything. Because you so, feel so good at giving to him, he feels he's doing you a favour. And he pretends so he's he naive and he pretends he doesn't know what he's doing. But oh, then, I'm just a child, a mere yeah. child. <laughs> Give me more money. Give me, more, Give me money. more money. I'm just a mere child. I can't pay you back. It is just so wonderful. Dickens has got the whole range of how people, what does goodness mean? And, and I understand you don't go for Esther Summerson and there's a lot not to like about it. She doesn't feel that she's lovable. She uh, and and but she is. Everyone does love her, and in the end, she's the constant. She is the one who does good. Doesn't seem good. She does good, practical good all the way through. But I have to say, the word little. If only, if only Charles Dickens had scrubbed the word little from his uh, dictionary, that would be this book would be twice as good. He calls little woman, your little woman, little this, little that. Women are always little. His ideal is a little woman, a meek woman, Esther Summerson, which is really weird because his most beloved daughter was anything but. And 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 while, as I've said, I don't think She's um, a she works. There's there's the Bagnets, uh, Mrs. Yes. Bagnet that that works, and there are and even Lady Dedlock at the end. Yes, uh, great come, love comes good. Uh, cool. Uh, so. Have really? we explained why we like it? Yeah, but uh, you're, yes. Andrew, you're convincing me that maybe yeah. this could it meet great expectations love. now. Yeah, well, everyone <laughs> says it's about the courts, and in a sense it no, is, it's but not it's about really. love and duty, and I think it's just, for that, it's so wonderful. Also bludges, Mr. Turvydrop, another great character, whose great, his, his great point in life is to... Bludge, uh, off, a, bludge off his son bludge and his daughter-in-law. His and, and then his daughter-in-law, who is uh, someone also loves, because he is a model of deportment. Again, Dickens forever you know, pokes fun at a model of deportment. He spends hours dressing himself up because once, I believe, the Prince of Wales noticed him. And so his duty is to go through life being a model of deportment to others, including his son. And let everyone else look after him. Exactly right. Okay, brilliant. Uh, so we'll now go to some questions that IPA members have sent through. So uh, we've already touched on Esther here, but we have a, so we've got a few questions about the book, a few questions about Dickens and his time, and a few other questions about some 
wider themes that are available that we might have time for at the end. Uh, but we'll go to this question from Ian Harper. So one mm. question I'd like to ask is whether Andrew and John think John Jarndyce had designs to marry Esther from the outset and had arranged for Richard and Ada to live with him to legitimise an arrangement that would otherwise have appeared unseemly. Uh, Ian goes on to say, he's always portrayed as an, such an upright fellow that I'd often wondered whether his intentions in bringing Esther to live with him were entirely honourable. It's well known that Dickens himself had a penchant for younger women. Would that he behaved as honourably as John Jarndyce when it came to dealings with his own wife? He acted extremely dishonourably with his wife. He made out like his wife, uh, there was never a meeting of minds and she uh, uh, was boring and all that and she let him down and was awful. When in fact the contemporary records at the time suggest she was an inspiration, uh, a great critic of his work, uh, was a model uh, on its tour in America. uh, Commentators repeatedly said, Hello, you know, uh, she really bucked him up and she was uh, she was so kind and all that. And then he fell in love with someone else, so he treated her like rubbish. She had ten children and then he was resentful of the children. And as lots of people said, then and now, he acted as if he had nothing to do with those uh, ten children coming into the world. Um, I agree. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, he had a very loving relationship. His daughters absolutely one of the daughters. Him. One of the daughters um, liked him, but then there was another one who absolutely hated him. And I agree with Ian that there is something a little bit spooky mm. about creepy, I think uh, is a bit yeah a bit a bit creepy about uh, John Jarndyce and and Esther. And again, this is. One of the things that I think does work in Dickens, he doesn't ever exactly explain what the court case is about. We know it's something to do with a will, but we don't know exactly. And he keeps on saying these are cousins, so presumably they're distant cousins. We never really get to the bottom of how this bloke living in this mansion gets to be looking after these cousins as wards of of chancery. Um, and there is a little bit of darkness that that hangs over that relationship. But I'm glad that in the end, Esther um, does uh, get to marry Alan and that in that part of the book, at least, has a bit of a happy Look, ending. Look, this is one of the creepy parts of the book that uh, I think uh, Dickens, the fantasist, as in his Dickens, own Dickens, the guy living a double imposes, life, nearly. Yes, yes. <laughs> We have John Jarndyce, one of the participants in this, uh, unwilling participants in this legal action. He takes up two wards, as you say, two distant cousins, and hires Esther to be the companion of one. And he falls in love with her, proposes marriage. She's so grateful because she doesn't feel... I think if you see her as a terribly damaged person who was abandoned by or lost her parents, raised lovelessly by a relative, uh, treated like dirt... Uh, then sent off as a governess. I can imagine. I can imagine that's a damaged person. I don't know whether Dickens intended her to seem so, but that's why I can forgive her in a way you can't. And uh, he falls in love with her, and she agrees because a sense of duty and gratitude to everything is done for her. And then he hands her off. Well, maybe we shouldn't. You can't marry people for gratitude. And, and I do find that a bit yuck. But yep. then, given that that is described through Esther Summerson's eyes. I don't know that you can then say Dickens is blind to that because it's talking through Esther. You're entitled to uh, see it, but I don't know. And so I think if, if I'm being if I'm being generous, I can go past that. <laughs> but I do think he's a bit of a strange person after all, John Jarndyce. And 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 Jarndyce does want to exercise these controls um, 
over his wards, over Richard. He tells Richard what careers to take. He does give Richard good advice, but again, we don't know whether he really means it, which is give up on the court case, uh, develop a profession, and Richard is one of the most pathetic He gets sucked characters. into the, ca- he get, he gets he sucked gets sucked into into the car- court case, thinks he can earn some money from it. His life is destroyed. But here again, like I say, the whole book, while it's the court case, is a meditation on the kinds of love and charity and duty to it. He owes... The, his other cousin, the, the two cousins fall in love. He owes her a duty of care, of love. He says he loves her, but he doesn't do he anything He doesn't do anything about, about it. it. And Ada puts up with it. And I, But again, there's a dependency. And, 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 you know, Dickens is frank about that, or through Esther is frank about exactly that, that Richard is a user and a loser and a loser, a loser, a loser. Yeah. And in all this, like I say, there's so many... You have a look at uh, Lady Deadlock and Celeste Deadlock. Celeste Deadlock looks like a complete numbskull, trading on his his family and his fortune and his reputation, completely proud. And having these And turns out to have depths that Richard Carsten, the ward, who's presented initially as a loving, charming person who sees through all this, he does not. And I think Dickens is, is brilliant in that. He sees us in our entirety, even if, as you say, he himself is imperfect. Okay, cool. We've got a second question here from Ian Harper. So, second question concerns Mrs. Jellyby, whose, uh, quote, telescopic philanthropy, as uh, you were talking about before, is often said to be modelled on Caroline Chisholm, who, uh, if people don't know, is a progressive 19th century English humanitarian, mostly for involvement in female uh, immigrant welfare in Australia. Given that she's generally held in high regard in this country, I know she was on the $5 note for a while, uh, what was it about Chisholm that particularly irked Dickens, and how did she come to his attention? Well, we know that... um uh, Caroline Chisholm met Dickens on a number of occasions and that uh, Dickens was a great proponent of immigration uh, to places like Australia, South Africa and Canada as a way of renewing people, as a way of allowing some of the underclass in, in London and, and Britain to escape. Um, I used to like uh, Caroline Chisholm and there's a great new biography out of her. Um, I must say after reading Bleak House and if uh, Jellyby had anything to do with Caroline Chisholm, I think a bit less of, of Caroline Chisholm. But again, it was, it was this willingness um, and desire not just to do good but to be always talking about it, to be always wanting everyone to care as much about it as you, to be always... At you and, and uh, Caroline Chisholm was famous, certainly here in, in Australia, for always being at the governor and always being at, at, at people. Someone who else could, had to do yeah, something. So, someone else. And um, a, again, it, it, it goes to this point that we've made, which is um, Dickens' anger uh, that there's all this talk about it. Everyone's not just anger; it's laughing at them as well. Well, but the, but, but the the laughter is is based on a very deep resentment that there's nothing happening for the working poor there's nothing that happened to him when he was working in the in the blacking factory at the age of 12 nothing is happening while people were dying of cholera he got very fired up about the crimean war which happened just after um bleak house when he said well look it's all great we're off to you know secure the straits to india and so on but what about what is happening right here Right now, and as you know, in this book too, um, any minister of he, he professes to be a Christian and loves Christianity, but nobody who they actually all look represents bad, the church uh, <laughs> ever turns out to be and a good person. But again, I will come back to my brand new great favourite character in world literature, Joe, uh, who doesn't know the Bible. I who, know nothing. Who knows nothing? 
Bart who starts to utter the Lord's Prayer, which mm. is far more meaningful than any of the sermons in Bleak House. Well, in fact, the the Reverend that uh, pops oh, up, oh Chad Band and these people, yeah, yeah. You know, he again, he's just there for the food. <laughs> it's just incredible. Um, but it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the uh, comic uh, parts of the book, one of the comic sort of uh, you know setups. Is when while everyone's dying around them. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly right. Is a meeting of all these good people, including Mrs. Jellaby and Mrs. Pardiggle, um, and and a guy who has a curious formation to his head. He falls in love with, or he wants to marry us for some for some reason. Here's one in this crowd too, and she keeps saying it looks like he's got <laughs> on his skull two horns. Now it's. It's actually you know, like it's the devil. Is really. that just a bit obvious from Dickens? Well, I still think it was very <laughs> funny. But uh, yeah, it describes this meeting of this great group, and uh, you know, they took a multitude. Uh, he says um, they were going. Uh, they were going to raise new buildings. Uh, this is a meeting of all these uh, w- women and a few men. They were going to raise new buildings. They were going to pay off debts on old buildings. They were going to establish in a picturesque building engraving of the proposed West Elevation attached. The Sisterhood of Medieval Marys. They were going to give a testimonial to Mrs. Jellaby. They were going to have their secretary's portrait painted and presented to his mother-in-law, whose deep devotion to him was well known. And, and then he, he says, They were the women of England, the daughters of Britain, the sisters of all the cardinal virtues separately, the females of America, the ladies of a hundred denominations. This is a meeting of, like I say, rapacious benevolence. It's just, you're just all these good people and you just want to flee the room. And you just want them to do something. Yeah. Uh, so we'll move on to another question. This is coming from Chris Golis. Uh, which character could easily live in our times with just a change of clothes and who's loose, least suited to life today and why? I know you mentioned oh, Mrs. Scribble. Jellaby. Mrs. Jellaby, without a doubt. I mean, and Mrs. Pardigal, you see them all the time, don't you, John? Uh, half of them are in Parliament. <laughs> and half, good point. Good point. They'd um, be Greens voters. They, 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 they Greens would, MPs. They would be, and I'm not going to talk uh, in this podcast about climate change and electricity prices, but that's exactly what Mrs Jellyby would have been on to if she'd been alive in 2018. Well, Mrs Jellyby would be Green MP with a telescope of philanthropy. She could see all the way to uh, the Middle East, but uh, nothing uh, on the streets of, <laughs> of Melbourne and Sydney. Okay, brilliant. This question was submitted anonymously. Uh, do you agree that Bleak House is less well-known than Dickens's work such as Great Expectations, David Copperfield and A Tale of Two Cities? Why do you think that is? Is it the quality of writing, the literature or the plot? Uh, well, uh, John should answer this because it took him three w- months to read the book. It's 900 pages, Andrew. I think that explains well, a lot. Well, oh, and as I said, look, I always found it uh, – daunting uh, at, at school and later you, you look at um, even Hard Times or Great Expectations, of course, Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, uh, Nickleby, etc. Um, I've got to be honest and say I don't like the title. I mean, it's ironic because, of course, Bleak House is actually quite a, a happy home and, and Dickens contemplated lots of different titles. But Bleak House is always presented as that hard, you know, that difficult, big, Dickens novel that you need to read one day, but why don't you do something easier first? But as I said, um, once I got into it, um, it it grabbed me because, as I said, the story is ridiculous, but the characters are just fantastic. I also think when you have a look at the other ones that were mentioned there, you know, Pip in Great Expectations or David Copperfield himself, um, these are people that you warm to. Nicholas yeah, Nickleby. you follow and you care for you in care a way that you don't quite in Bleak yes, House. Yes, the Sim- Samson, as you say, uh, there's something 
you know, too damaged about her in one sense. She's really like a mechanism around which this whole whirly gig of other characters spin. So I like all the minor characters and the themes uh, really uh, greatly, but I think you don't have that central character like you do. But in it's interesting. Movies. At the time, it, it sold very well and was one of his um, best-selling uh, serials and again when Andrew said I had to read Bleak House and this would be the first book and I googled it you know uh Dickens best book nearly everyone says it is and but it's interesting I can too, sort of it? now see why but not still not my favorite but he's actually writing at the time about Karl Marx's too and about the same kind of things in a sense very similar yes yes and people often say Dickens is a sort of revolutionary who didn't actually have the guts to uh, well he didn't stand for parliament because he got asked Often and he kept on saying no. No, and I think that was a wise move because what he did with his books it was more it was important. more powerful. Um, but the point is, in some sense, it's like that that bishop who gave that stupid lecture at uh, the wedding of Meghan Markle and uh, Prince Harry. All you need is love. In a sense, is saying you don't need revolution; you need love. He had a horror of revolutions. You see that in Taylor Two Cities and in Barnaby Rudd, uh, a Rudge. But um, here he just says, "If only we were better people." Uh, things would be better. And while that is trite, it is true. If we actually established our duty to people and knew it wasn't enough to pose as loving or to simply say, like Richard Carson, I love you, there's actually got to be a follow-through. And and the turning out of Joe from various homes and places where of shelter where he was being looked after is a metaphor... Um, for that, and again, it's significant that where does Joe end up? He ends up, and again, in one of the, for me, one of the really good characters, um, uh, George's shooting gallery, mm-hmm. uh, where George is not well off. George is struggling. George is not rich. He has been turned away from his family. So who ends up looking no, after? No, he's too ashamed to go. He's back too to ashamed, and and he looks after Joe. So, uh, see, I'd go more than that. I think it's Dickens says, well, we have to love and we have to care. Um, but again, no, we, we have, have to, to love and care. And then do something about exactly it. Exactly right. Uh, that leads us really well into the next question. This is coming from Jeff Hem. So uh, collectivists often cite Dickens as raising awareness of the downtrodden, which they argue justifies socialist policies to lift them up. If not by socialism, how can such a strata of society be helped out of poverty, both in Dickens' day and in the contemporary era? Well, Dickens wasn't a revolutionary. And some people say, oh, look, lack the courage to go through. Or, you know, as I say, Marx is writing at the same time. I don't think Dickens ever looks to government to be the big saviour. I think he looks to people all the time. And he admires good people. I mean, in David Copperfield, Betsy Trotwood is a good person. And he keeps stressing our relations to one another. I think that is it, yeah, in, the, in, in modern political terms, you'd say it's very local, it's very democratic. He hates the system. And uh, lots of people have said that in Bleak House, he's talking about for the first time like a whole social system where everyone's connected. Um, there's a little bit of discussion about government. But Dickens's point is the system has failed. It's the Georges and the Allens looking after the Joes that make a difference. It's Esther uh, looking after the children that she does. So, And then I'd go further, which Dickens, of course, doesn't do, and I don't want to be historicist about it, but it's about um, uh, work, it's about flourishing, it's about meaning, um, and that's the next step that I don't think Dickens yet makes. Um, but I don't think Dickens ever talked about um, 
socialism. Uh, he talked about a system that is failing. He he definitely no, no, saw. No, I think he'd like to. He, yeah, he, he saw a he role saw for failings. Yeah, in failing. The he, he saw a role for Parliament, and he was friends with many liberal politicians, and he was actively engaged in aspects of of liberal politics. And he um, uh, people had been at him to stand for Parliament. Um, but again, I don't. As Andrew said, I don't think he. Government he didn't want to blow up the system. Government was was different then. He didn't look to he didn't look to government. He looked to neighbours and families and and community. And he hated fake community. When as Andrew said, people went around um, to to the homes of uh, brickmakers, uh, and while children were dying, would recite um, complaints about what they were doing or not doing. Uh, so if I could offer one for me, so there's all, uh, all this conservative idea of like a big society rather than reliance on the government, the reliance on society. So you guys would say Dickens would more be on the favour of the conservative big society side than looking to the government as a way to... Yeah, I, th- I think he saw a proper role for government. I mean, but um, he, he, he his idea was more reform than revolution. So he would, for example, in hard times, it was the way children were taught... That's what he was really upset about, the cruelty to children, which is always a thing that got his real his dander up. Um, here, reform to the legal system, uh, he, and that came a little bit from this. That's what he was after. Reform. He hated the workhouses. He hated Kant and workhouses, and he just wanted people to act better. That's, that's really it. And he didn't look for a nirvana in an overturning society. When you look at Taylor Two Cities, the way he describes the crowds there, you know, um, with their uh, dancing in the street, with their hands held high and their heads held low and uh, howling and wailing as they danced their horrid, you know, he hated the mob. He yeah, didn't trust He the hated mob. the mob, but I also think uh, that his views on the French Revolution were not completely solid because at, at times he would whisper and, and utter, well, maybe, you know, maybe the French do have it better. And, of course, the, the point about spontaneous combustion is his argument that, well, if we don't fix things, then the society is going to combust. So, yeah, but, but, that, but that is a point. You're right. He's saying, you know, at some stage, you will keep acting like this. We will get a revolution. You will get yeah, something. we'll okay. We'll you get a revolution. Will, you will pay. Yeah, which is of course the argument about the success of, of British liberal democracy and the parliamentary system as to why, in the middle of 1848, Europe was going up in flames. Why did it not happen in in Britain? And in Britain, there still was some parliamentary outlet uh, in a way that didn't exist on the continent. Correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Susan Leenbruggen. I apologise if I'm mispronouncing that one. Leenbruggen. Leenbruggen. Uh, well, hopefully that's the way of pronouncing it. Uh, okay, so uh, you guys talk about the humour and the sort of uh, po- poking fun at certain parts of the characters and stuff. Uh, Susan asks about my, our mutual friend. Uh, she says, this was Dickens' penultimate novel and it almost completely lacks humour. The tort is somewhat uh, detached prose, lack of sympathetic characterization, and depressing backdrop, or reflect on a certain disillusionment with humanity with Dickens. Uh, do you sort of see Dickens as he gets older and gets more into getting his books, more bitter and twisted? Getting more bitter and <laughs> twisted. Is that something you see in his works? Uh, he, he gets a little darker. He, yeah. I think it's more serious. And uh, maybe the, I don't know. Maybe the comic invention that you get right from the start with the uh, Pickwick Papers and Nicholas Nickleby and and all that kind of stuff. That's hard. That's really hard to keep doing. And it is true. It, it, it gets uh, a little less like that. But maybe also he wants to be a bit more the Tolstoy. I don't know. He wanted to be a bit more serious. But 
he got frustrated that the critics wouldn't let him be more serious and his the reading public by and large stuck with him all the way through but there was a feeling that look I I, I can do comedy and I write plays and I do these books I, I, I want to talk about the two Englands I want to talk about these vast social movements and again I without being psychoanalytical about really well exactly and but I, I think it's also a case that um, uh, his his private life and his family life was turning to to dust and a lot of uh, artists uh, like Trollope uh, couldn't couldn't stand what he'd done. It's interesting. <laughs> that reminds me. You know, uh, Rossini um, once paid a visit to Beethoven, and um, his heart was in his throat because the great Beethoven. Rossini was a younger man, and Beethoven uh, looked him up and down and said, "Keep writing those comic operas. They're great." <laughs> and what really destroyed, what really stuck in Rossini's craw was that most of his operas to date were allegedly serious ones. <laughs> now, of course, we remember mostly his comic operas rather than William Tell and, and all those, great as they are. But, um, yeah, th- to the end of his life, that hurt him. Rossini knew his genius and his, his memory was in comic rather than serious. In fact, one of his, his he wrote a great mass, which he called The Little Mass, but it was actually quite long, and he said, please accept this humble little thing. People might not like it, you know. When he was serious, he knew that, that's not what people it's like, it reminds me, was there too. There was a wonderful documentary on Bernstein and uh, West Side Story and he was always frustrated that people knew him as the composer of West Side Story and not as this awesome composer. For most people, if you've composed West Side uh, Story, uh, you've done something very special, but he wanted to be regarded as a serious composer and conductor. You know what we haven't said, though, about Dickens is that, and it's so easy to forget, he was simply a great writer. He was simply a wonderful writer. You know, he writes of Esther Summerson, I think it is, that she was a noticing child, a phrase that's always stuck with me. I love people who are noticing, particularly noticing children. You know the kind, the ones that are alive to what's happening. Their eyes light up. They've got enjoy. And, and Dickens, I think, was a noticing man, a noticing child. It like it lines like uh, where he says of Mrs. Jellyby's husband, who's a t- total non-entity, sits half the time with his head against the wall in despair, and then just, uh, has to find his own dinner when she gets home, which to Dickens is a terrible thing to do. Um, she, uh, it's said of him by Conversation Kenge, one of the unsympathetic lawyers. The husband is merged in the most, more shining qualities of his wife. <laughs> I think that's such a great line. Merged in the more well, shining wanna, qualities of his I'm wife. I'm going to ask you, Andrew, a question about uh, writing. You, in the course of a week, write many, many more words than I do. And one of the things that I always want to know is then that I Google, you Google, how many words do the great writers write a day or a week? Um, Dickens, uh, I'm sure someone would know exactly how many words he wrote over the course of his life, but for decades he wrote at least four or five hours a day. He would go for six, seven-hour walks. And it always struck me that when you're talking to younger people about whether it's writing a novel or a research report or an op-ed for a newspaper, they're always waiting for this um, genius and this spirit of inspiration to come. And the point about Dickens is no. he did it every single day from the age of 15 or 16. And he wrote, he wrote journalism. Uh, every single wrote day he travel did travel memoirs. He wrote plays in which he himself starred. And he got better. He didn't get worn. Because I think young people today sometimes think, oh, here I am going on about young people, think, oh, you get worn down. You've only got so many great words in you. Whereas Dickens had no. hundreds of thousands of great exactly, words. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and another great uh, novelist, but perhaps not 
just not touch with the touch of genius of Dickens, but a contemporary, uh, is Anthony Trollope. And we're going to do Trollope later on. Trollope is a great writer, but he actually got his uh, servant to wake him up, I think, uh, some ungodly hour, five o'clock in the morning, and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then at about eight o'clock, nine o'clock, he'd go to work at the post office. He's the guy that actually um, invented or posted around uh, Britain the red letterboxes that you see. He's the guy that set that up. So he was a great post office official. But now, you say, you know, we give grants to artists so they don't have to do the humdrum of life and they can devote themselves to staring at a canvas. Trollope wrote more books than Dickens by a mile and did it as a post office employee. And and there was an idea of hard work. So Dickens just would have his breakfast uh, at a set time and whether he was on holiday or at home, he would go to his study or go to a place to work. He would emerge four or five hours later and then continue on with the rest of his day and he would do it day in, day out. And, of course, one of the things that upset uh, Dickens about his children is that this example of hard work uh, never seemed, in his view, to be inculcated in well, in any of them. That's because a genius is a genius, and to have in a family two geniuses is you're against the odds there. So and that's have you just read my script. notes? No, I have you, I, I literally, and this is from Peter Ackroyd's biography, which I think is the, probably the, one of the best books on on Dickens. And I was actually going to um, mention this at the end, but I'll mention it to you now. I'm going to say that I'm sitting in the presence of. Andrew and James, and so this quote from Dickens about his kids, of course, doesn't apply to the Bolt family. Sons of great men are not usually as great as their fathers. You cannot get two Charles Dickens in one generation. But but it's true. Except it's the Bolt. But it's interesting, you know, um, what I also find, and particularly since I worked too hard, and, and James will probably... Are you suffering from that, James? Say, you weren't there for <laughs> us. Don't, don't say it now. Don't say, don't say you weren't there for us, Dad. But Dickens had that phenomenal work ethic, and yet his daughters, like one of his daughters wrote a um, Life with Charles, Life with My Father, I can't remember what it's called. Um, they remember him being present for them when it counted. And, and not just like, you know, you're there for me, but he'd be there in the evenings, he'd be there for the parties, he'd be there for their friends. He was always on, and they loved that the shows he put on, the plays he put on. Oh, no, I'm now going it. to take on the anti. I'm going to be part of the anti-Charles Dickens faction and I'll acknowledge... And there's a big one. No, and there's a big one and growing and I will acknowledge all of that. Um, but I would argue that even at that time, it was a bit strange to be sending your seven-year-old son to a boarding school in France mm. for 10 months of the year. That's true. I, I, to say goodbye to your son I to India. No, no, no. To say to go, goodbye to your son uh, at the age of 16 and never see him again. The, but he did like his daughters, his daughters and, and he acknowledged that he loved his daughters but more. But I, I actually think... You're absolutely right to pull me up on that. It's the there is a distinction between the daughters and the sons, and I think this really goes back to. It's interesting. He, the resentment that he felt to his parents yes, about yes. going to the blacking factory and not being appreciated. He didn't have a great role model. It, yeah, but it, it was his father that actually lost the money, right? And uh, his grandfather that was a fraud, but it was his mother on whom he really held the bitterest resentment. Yes. And I always think For not was, giving him the education that he thought he should All that have. kind of stuff. And also mocking her when she once went to set up, you know, the family's losing money. She, tries, she decides, I'll do a boarding school. Total disaster. No one 
turned up and uh, total disaster. I lost even more money. But at least she tried. But he mocked her even trying. Well, and I find that really interesting. In his books too, he's always after the ideal feminine. His best characters are ones that aren't ideal uh, women. They're great women, but they're not ideal women. His ideal women don't live. They're pallid. And they've always got the word little attached to them. And his favourite daughter was also not a little... She was a firebrand who married an artist, uh, eventually his second marriage. Um, she was great. She was a spitfire. And he loved her, which is really weird. He had this ideal that didn't exist either in his novels, really. They don't come to life there or outside. He had four mocking women. I mean, the, the way he, he treated... Uh, his wife after they they split, mocking her in an advertisement in the Times, mocking her to his friends. Mm -hmm. A great artist, but not so much of a role model. No, and she, uh, his wife though, always wished that he would come by and and maintained his memory. So there was something lovable about him. He just was, uh, he was just on fire in, in a way. Uh, so this next question comes from me, actually. So I just want to go back to uh, Dickens' worth ethic compared to his children. I We touched on how Dickens himself was born into pretty, um, you know, not great circumstances and worked from a very young age. Uh, do you think the having to work that early on and having this writing talent that he had, that it was, was that's my one ticket out of here, that allowed him to work even harder than anyone else? But he wasn't exactly born in poverty, Um he his fell into it later on, yes. was fairly senior in the uh, Navy uh, and then started pinching stuff. His father had a good post in the Navy. We're talking about a time when people were, a lot of people were in real poverty. But then his father lost the money and then he had that touch of it. He was brought, the, the thing I think that really shocked him was he was brought down in class, right? He, he lost class and caste in, in class-ridden Britain. That shocked him. He'd been dropped into a subclass that he, in his view, in word, uh, in mind, and hope had been lost, trying to climb his way out of it. That scarified him. Once he got his chance again, he worked. Part of that is genius. When you're good at something, you like keep doing it. Uh, you like to keep doing it. But then taught himself shorthand, reported on Parliament, became a reporter, became an editor, just wrote. always did more and and. Apparently, he, he thought in pictures, he thought in stories, and far be it for me to draw any comparison between um, Charles Dickens and Enid Blyton, but uh, apparently from a very young age, Enid Blyton could just knock off a thousand words of a story at a time, and Dickens could be doing that from the age of 15 or 16. You're studying Dickens' life, and you're thinking of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. You're thinking of um, the Beatles in the basements of Germany just working, 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 practising, practising, practising until they got really, really good at it. And the thing is, I think he found it hard, but writing was also a, a release. He lived with his characters. He got upset when he had to kill them off or when they died. Absolutely. Um, and, and he... Little Dorrit yeah, was the one. It. Little Dorrit was the one where... He'd get sick. Yeah. I, didn't, I always thought Little Dorrit had too much sugar in it. <laughs> yeah. But that, the death of Little Dorrit, it's the one that really destroyed him. But, um, but it's interesting. I, I think that 10,000 hours thing works in terms of... Uh, productivity and works in terms of use of language you know you get better but nothing can exp- but genius but can he had explain genius. the noticing yes. boy the way that he could bring a character to life in just a flash you know mrs jellaby you just notice 
From the very start when you introduce, you go up the stairs, you see children, one child with his head caught in the basement railings, another one falling down the stairs, all, and you go up to the top, and there's Mrs. Jellaby writing letters uh, f appealing for people to help in Africa. You've got her. He just the sees, telescopic philanthropy. He sees things a bit differently. He looks for different things. Well, which it says gets, Mrs. Mrs. Jellaby, her stays weren't didn't quite match. Uh, you know, they didn't quite meet. They, they were loosely tied. A little detail. Like I mean, that, the little bang, description of, of of Phil, who works uh, with George in the shooting gallery, uh, the the dirty hands. It, you, you can this, actually, you can sort this, of just see it. Yes, yes, yes. As you said, well, it's it's, it's a bit um, cinematic. Well, it's a little bit like Sherlock Holmes. You know, I know that you are a. Uh, I know that you. Um, are a cat lover who forgot to yeah. feed the cat because you you got hair on the... He would notice these little details. He had an eye for the detail that distinguished someone's trait. And people talk about types. You know, Dickens saw people in caricature. You go through life, you look at people around you, so many people are caricatures. He actually, that, that is unfortunately how we are. Yeah, and there were a few, and he could succeed with a few thousand caricatures, which he did yeah. so brilliantly. Like I say, about 80 characters, I think. I can't remember, I might be wrong by 20, there might be 100. And he but forgets half characters. of them halfway through, and, and the reader forgets them. Uh, but then when they come back, you think, oh, that's right, you're the one with the curls in the hair, or you're the ones with the dirty fingernails, or you're the one with something else. Yeah, you're the one that carried a handkerchief in a certain way, or uh, for, was forever sniffing, or, yeah, exactly right. But also the, you know, the names always help, you know. Uh, the, the lawyer Tulkinghorn, you get the idea, you know. The lawyer Voles, a little you, bit you, like You call someone Vol. Snagsby and you think, well, okay, they're a slightly ridiculous <laughs> character, but they're also a bit of a caring Rouncewell's a what a fantastic surname, and he took a lot of time thinking and testing out names. He did indeed, and the names are so evocative. And again, you know, with, with you, you mentioned Snagsby, Mister Snagsby is turns out to be a minor hero of this. Good story. character. His yeah, wife is character. fanatically jealous of him. There's nothing to be jealous about. But here again, the characteristic of him that he keeps giving uh, Joe and others. A, a little coin, don't tell Mrs. Snagsby. And he gives a little coin. Wherever he goes, just gives a little coin, don't tell the wife. And in fact, that's one of his secrets that she thinks something's up and makes him <laughs> even more jealous. But, you know, those characteristic defining things about people. Just little and, and character traits and, and just little turning moments like that. Exactly right. Okay, brilliant. I think we've got time for one more question. This was sent through by a few different people, but I'll, I'll quote Matthew Fagan's one. So Dickens' books were serialised in magazines before being printed as full books. Uh, this is something that was very popular back in the day. It's no longer popular. Books just come out as one big book, and obviously we have TV shows that come like out. Like binge TV series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, do, uh, what does that sort of bring to a book that you like, and what does it sort of subtract the idea of serialisation? Uh, you, you do get the cliffhanger um end of chapter but that's now reinvented isn't it John I mean you go through you know Joe ne I'm not saying Joe Nesbo is Charles Dickens but you go through Joe Nesbo book or whatever like that uh, you will get the cliffhanger at the end of a chapter you go through West Wing you go through uh, my Friday favourite Friday Night Lights TV series you go through Breaking Bad it's uh, he developed out of the serialisation um, I think one of the things that you don't get from reading um, the book in one go is is the journey over a period of of years and months, and they would talk. And again, you 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 look at the the books talking about Dickens, and people would would buy the pamphlet, hand it on. They would talk about it. What's going to happen? Have you read this? Have you seen this? 
Um, and it was an emotional experience, I suppose, like we get with movies or TV series or these days, I dare say, like MasterChef or something. Uh, the community travelled with Dickens, whereas this is sometimes like an overload of chocolate. No, but I think it's interesting that – I mean, you mentioned – I think you're onto something there by mentioning – uh, uh, something like Breaking Bad, but the, the more the Netflix thing or the Stan or the, uh, the 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 new series that we have binge watching in, which is endlessly long, you know, Game of Thrones long, uh, and every chapter or well, well, episode is a chapter. When you write like that, a you can sustain a journey over a longer period. Yes, which you can if do. You're standing and writing a book in one go. It's that's harder. That's much harder. Two, you can. People it with many more characters yeah. that, and then lose them along the journey. They, they will do for that chapter. They will do yes. for that episode. Um, and I, I think that probably that may explain the richness of all those characters in Dickens. That he could do that. He could be profligate that way. And he starts a character and might not know um, how they end. How it so, ends, yeah. so a couple of times he'd, he'd draw a character on from real life, and Skimpole is one such example. Uh, and then they would complain, and then halfway through he'd have to turn the character from bad to good or good to bad. Skimpole um, never ends <laughs> up uh, that good, though. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Which is something that happens a lot in TV shows. Characters start out bad, they become good. I'm thinking Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. Very bad guy. Yeah, the actor wants a pay rise, and yeah, they have yeah, to yeah. kill them off. No, yeah. but you can play with the character a little more, too. And and from the feedback you get from the audience and thinking about it, you, you can... You can play with the thing as you go along. I think one of Dickens' book. I'm trying to remember where people were upset about how he's treating a certain character, and he he changed as as he went on. But that said, uh, like I say, this is like a meditation. You know, uh, the narrative is there in this book, um, and I presume that he had a vague idea of it goes about Esther Summerson and uh, a woman that she believes is her mother, and I won't go through that, but. That's and, and the Jarndyce case. Those are the two big narrative threads, and Joe is the character that which around all this whirls. But every chapter is a, essentially a meditation, as I say, about love and duty and responsibility. And and then you can have one chapter on that and one chapter on this, and one. You don't need that great, you know, arrow of narrative to take you through. You mean like Jordan Peterson? <laughs> no, no, but I, I, look, well. we're always going to experience a, a book that's written 150 years ago. You're going to experience differently today uh, than then. But you know, I, I deliberately mention Jordan Peterson because uh, while Dickens can write nicely, the reader does have to work a bit. You know, you, know, you do have to, you do have to follow sometimes quite closely, and not everything is explained at the beginning or the middle. And but I find it's you know, I'm going through my big yet. Jordan Peterson period, and and people say, "How can you watch a two hour lecture that doesn't have a point?" I said, "Well, that's the point." I, and I, look, Dickens does get to the point at the end, as I think Peterson. I think, does. I think all the characters make points. Look, I, I take what you're saying that if you're reading in the modern way. Um, in our time on the train way, for ten minutes. If you're yeah. reading for the message, yep. if you're reading yep, for the plot, right. get that's to right. the business. Yeah, you're yeah, reading tell, to get through. Uh, yes. Tell me what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me yes, what happens. Exactly. Tell me, yeah. Information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, yep. This is the information. Give me the information. Yep. I, I think that's right. And 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 this has fallen out of favour. But I think in the Netflix period now, we're in a different thing. A lot of people now are looking for to immerse themselves in another world, yep. right? And they don't need. You know, the the one and a half hour movie tell us in ninety minutes the whole thing that's now starting to look really 
too superficial and too easy begin to end and finish and I haven't explored it I haven't buried myself in it I haven't You've, watched a 14 hour video of a train journey the, 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 correct but it, it is something to that in, in, in that sense I'm actually enjoying the language I'm enjoying the jokes I'm enjoying the characters if you see that if you're just burying yourself I'm going to sit and dick and say have a chapter and just go into it and have a laugh um, that's different but who's got that time anymore you certainly didn't I did in the end. No, no, but I'm saying, I'm saying the fact that it's 900 words, this is not a book Pages, for yes, a guy as busy as you. It, it just isn't. But you, Unless you're really determined to do it and you have me on the phone saying, John, have you finished? And James saying, when are we recording the podcast? Yeah. But it was completely worth it. Okay, I might call the podcast there. Thank you so much, guys. That was a really, really fun chat. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our listeners for sending through those really interesting questions. Uh, So tune in in a fortnight's time when we discuss The Leopard.